Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Last week, we barely scratched the surface in checking the original investigation's preliminary actions. The next steps that should be taken in any death scene investigation are also very basic. One of my main references is the book Practical Homicide Investigation by Vernon Gaybreth. I'm joined again by Katie's mom, Vicki, private investigator and podcaster, Lori Morrison, and volunteer crowdsourcer, Kendra and Chelsea. I want you to learn more about what I think should have been done for Katie, River, and Aiden. Find out about the victim, the name, address. I'm going to go through all of them and then we'll describe it. Name and address, location of the victim, description of the body and the scene. Has the patrol officer personally seen the body, which we know they did, personally determine and verify the death. Note condition of the body. Ascertain whether or not there are any suspects in custody. Are there any additional victims? Is it a multiple murder? Again, you're walking in, it's a homicide. Officially assign an investigator to the case. And if you have identified the victim, you need to pull a background. So let's go through that. Is there a background check on Katie in the file? I do not see any sort of background check on Katie in the file. Do they show any way that they identified it was Katie at the scene? I believe they got her license from her truck, and that was used to make a preliminary identification. That they found her identification, including other items, in the bag that was in her truck. But of course, they don't have any way to get into her truck until Friday the 18th. Um, That's when they got a duplicate key from uh, the Chevrolet dealership, and they got into her truck. So on a report written on the 18th, she is identified by name on that report. So they're calling her by name, but there's no reference to truly how they ID'd her. And the report that references getting her driver's license out of the truck that report was not written. Well, it has an initial report date of 116.08. I think that's only because they're referencing back to the abandoned vehicle. That's what they call it, the abandoned vehicle. So I think that initial report date must somehow tie back to the initial report of Mr. Robinson finding it in his driveway. But the date they submitted that report is January 21st. So I want to make this clear so that I understand it and everybody that's listening. What it sounds like you're saying to me is they have documentation that they've identified her before the documentation says they were able to access her identification from her vehicle. But there's no notation of who or how they identified her without having those identification papers yet. Is that right? That's a correct statement. That's very interesting to me. In that report, and I know there's a lot of problems with this particular report. 
But in that report, it says that the mother of K Major, so that would be Vicky, showed up and said that was her daughter's car. But they never had Vicky look at the victim. I mean, that could have been a random car sitting there, and they don't know that until they get the license out of the car. It's kind of like you're going in circles. They have Vicky saying that's her car. They're telling Vicky that it's Katie that's found deceased. Yes, they did. They told me it was Katie and River. So they showed me nothing to look at. You know, I didn't have anything to look at. So I don't don't know if this is a good time to bring this up, but I was told the police got one of the men from the horse farm to basically break into Katie's truck. And that's not documented anywhere either. So they had someone they didn't know touching Katie's truck and get it open at the scene, but it's not in the record. For all they knew at this point, that vehicle could have been stolen. So just because they know that it is or isn't Katie's car does not mean that Katie is the one that drove it to where it's been found. Kendra, where did you see that they didn't get the license until a later date? I see it written here that on the 17th, the responding deputy met with Hampton Robinson in reference to the vehicle. It says Deputy Sykes responded and was able to assist in opening the vehicle with no damage. Inside the vehicle was a child seat, baby items, and a black diaper type bag that was also used as a purse. The identification for K Major as well as other items were located in that bag and the bag was removed by Deputy Spence. Again, no report from Deputy Spence. So you're right, maybe made an assumption because I saw when they got the key from the Chevrolet dealer. So you're right, it does reference that they were able to assist in the opening, which might mean they were able to break into it. But again, that report's not dated till the 21st. There's reference that they towed the vehicle. So um, it was taken, I believe, to impound. It was taken to forensics. The vehicle was towed by Jim's towing to the forensics building. But I don't believe we have any sort of report from... Who's who they saying got into the vehicle? Deputy Sykes responded and was able to assist in opening the vehicle. But it says identification for Katie as well as other items were located in that bag. And the bag was removed by Deputy Spence. We got Sykes and Spence. And I wonder if he's ever been talked to. Doesn't look like it. There are no reports that we have in this official record written by Sykes. I know this is shocking to everybody. We haven't gotten to the crime scene, what you need to do at the crime scene. We're still at preliminary. Again, you walk into a scene. These are the things you do automatically. When professionals with decades of experience have developed sound guidelines for making sure nothing is overlooked in an investigation, why wouldn't you follow them? Why would you be in such a hurry to wrap up the violent ending of three lives? Don't you think the victims deserve a better effort than what we've seen so far? This is when you determine the scope of the crime scene and assess how big the crime scene is or isn't. So that's the moment after you've done all those things where you interview, you talk to people, you separate any witnesses. Now you're at the point of, okay, what do we have here? That's where the car, the house, and the train all should have been locked down. You have taken a course on death scenes and you know you assess it and you understand all three locations are potential crime scene. Was that done? It was not. A note on the car as well, in the original pictures that they took, 
it shows there's this little green toy that Vicky said she had just given to River. And Hampton Robinson mentions that when he saw the car the night before, it was on the floor outside of the car and he picked it up and put it on the windshield. So there are pictures showing this little toy on the windshield. And then you flip a few more pictures in and now all of a sudden it's inside of the car underneath some stuff. They not only have contaminated their crime scene, they have photos documenting the contamination of their crime scene. And they have never stated or acknowledged that this occurred. That is altering a crime scene. That's staging this crime scene. After they assess how big the crime scene is, they're supposed to then go through and see who has legal status of the crime scene police, train, FBI, SLED, that's when you determine after an assessment. Obviously, an assessment was done and determined in this case that Rick Olick is going to be in charge of it. Rick Olick took hold of this investigation and wasn't going to let go. Since it was brought up that Rick Olick was in charge of this investigation, he's the captain. So yes, he was should have been in charge of it. But what his job is to do is to then assign the case to a lieutenant. And then the lieutenant works with a sergeant. Well, this case was never signed to a lieutenant, which is also a very odd thing. Rick Olick never put it in the hands of a lieutenant. He skipped that position and kept himself in charge of it for some reason. But that's very unusually done. It is never clear who is actually assigned to this case because we hear that, yes, Rick Alec was in charge of it. And we've heard some names come out that were supposedly a deputy helping. None of those names were Brian Mosier. I don't know where he came from, but he wrote a huge proportion of the paperwork in this case. I have never heard that Brian Mosier was assigned as a lead investigator in this case. I don't know if anyone else has. Kendra, have you? No, I have not heard that, but I agree with you that Brian Moser does seem to be, at least back in 08, the dominant name throughout. And I don't know on these reports if this is common or not, but I notice almost every report that's written by someone else is written by the, it's a reporting officer, and then there's a spot for approving officer. When Brian Moser writes the report, there is no approving officer filled in. That's blank on his. I don't know if that's normal or if he's at a level where he doesn't have to have an approving officer. It's just one thing that sticks out. Every other person does. So I'm wondering if if they mention someone else, does that officer then have to approve the report? When this happened, Brian Mosier was a brand new officer. I don't want to say for sure, but possibly a sergeant, possibly or a deputy. But I know he was a brand new officer. so. He should have had somebody looking over him. That would be normal, I would think. So when Brian Mosier puts his name on the report, he does not include a title. He's, he simply writes Mosier, Brian. And then he references himself in the narrative as this detective. The crime scene itself is rarely the only place evidence can be found. In today's data-rich world, there are any number of records that need to be looked at if you want to be as thorough as you should be.
So one of the things we're asking for, Vicki, is the outside cameras when Aaron finished his interview and also the hallway cameras. Do you know at the police station if they have cameras in the hallway? I know even back then when I went in, yes. And there's cameras in the waiting room where you would wait for someone to come get you and bring you to one of the detectives or to Alec. And there's cameras on you in that waiting room. And it was in 2008 because I remember the cameras being on me then. That's good to know because she said she worked there in 2007. She didn't think there were cameras there inside. I was going to say I stand corrected on Brian Moser. I found one page where there is an approving officer and it is Gerald Marathu that approved it. And he does not have a title listed either, but in the narrative, it referenced him as a sergeant, detective sergeant. It's easy to overlook and confuse details. So we always want to double check and correct our narratives as we go. The narrative has to fit the facts, not the other way around. You have to constantly fact check yourself to be sure that you let the evidence tell its own story. So that is actually dated June 17th of 2008. However, the narrative references that this was actually conducted on January 22nd. Right. Six months later almost. Right. For some reason, it did not get into the official record. I just have to say, I would find it very interesting to find out Brian Mosier's training and qualifications. Since I was told back then that he was a brand new officer and he had so much paper trail on this case, was he even qualified to do what he did? That's just my questioning. I did reach out to the Dorchester Sheriff's Office in an attempt to ask Brian Mosier some questions about some of this paperwork. I do know they received that. I know he saw a message because I got a call back from another person in that department and they were questioning. They're like, Oakley Road's not even in our county. I'm like, oh no, I know. It was a case he worked on back then a few years ago. I just had some questions about the paperwork. He saw the message that I wanted to talk to him and ask him questions. He chose not to contact me back, but to pass it off. One thing that troubles me is that I know this is what they gave Vicki, but I feel like they didn't really give Vicki a lot of the official report because there's reference in here to written statements from people like Amy, the sister of Aaron, has given a written statement and it's placed in the case file and yet you don't see it in here. There's not a copy of it. You know, that initial log that we talked about, that's not anywhere in here. So it's almost like this is just skimming on the very, very tip of the case. And none of the details are in here. The details are somewhere else where Vicki and family can't see them. I'm not really sure if that's the case because I believe there is a statement somewhere in there from maybe it's probably not a full report. I was told in 2018 because I had saved all the documents, most of the case had disappeared in their file. So what I had, thank God I had it, was what I had by Kokenda and Lewis, the detectives working on the case, told me, we got most of the case back from you. Most of this was gone. You had to provide them with their own case file. Yes, ma'am. I cannot even believe that. And I know you are an honest person. Thank God for that. 
Sadly, that's not that atypical because you have cases where people latch onto a narrative very quickly. Um, a 911 call is called in and the first words are, there's a suicide here. And so that becomes the narrative and everything they see, rather than independently evaluating each piece of evidence, they're trying to figure out how it fits into the suicide narrative or how it fits into the accident narrative or whatever narrative has been pushed onto them. So yes, it would be very, very easy if Vicki weren't an upstanding and honest person for her to push her own narrative, but she hasn't done that. I think it's disgusting that they would even, I guess it's not that they would tell you the truth, but how can they have lost this? You know, I mean, and all throughout this report on every single page, they have to mark whether this is still an active case or not. Every single page of this report, it's marked that this is an active case. So it's not like it should have been closed and filed away in a back room where some flood or hurricane destroyed it. This has been an active case all throughout on paper. Well, and then looking through the documents, it would have been very hard for me to make this up because we've got their names. I just got their reports, but they disappeared. Most of them weren't on file, but I have their reports. So they're, you know, they're not dying. There's a way to prove these are your documents, but they just didn't care enough to keep a file on this case very well. Well, and let's be real. We live in the 21st century. We have cloud computing. We have the idea that redundant storage is a baseline. That's that's something that everyone should be doing, whether it's a business, it's the police, it's whoever. You always have a backup of your documentation in case something happens, and that backup is stored separately. That's not even police 101. That's just being an organized person 101. Whether a case is officially open or closed is critical for families who have questions about the death of their loved one. If a case is officially still open, even if no one is actively working it, the authorities do not have to share any information about it, even with the family. Okay, so this is from August 18th, 08. The case status says admin closed, which I'm assuming means closed. So 818, it's admin closed. And on 821, Brian Mosier received information back that the search warrant that was conducted on the husband's telephone was the incorrect number given. The search warrant was then signed in a new search, search warrant with the correct number, and he said he was awaiting the results. So it's admin closed on 818. They don't realize they don't even have the correct phone information for Aaron until 821. And then, then on the search warrant, it says along the lines, a search warrant was sent off two weeks ago. This is 821, they say this for the tower locations of Aaron Major's cell phone to possibly obtain his whereabouts on the night that Katie Major went missing prior to locating her deceased on the railroad tracks the following day. It's August. It's August. And you decided back in January that it was a suicide. You're waiting until August to send a search warrant for the husband's location. And then you close it on the 18th without even realizing you got the wrong information, the wrong phone number. So in the file, does it show that they ever got the documentation of the cell tower records? Because what they provided Vicki is not what a cell company, a telephone company would provide. So somebody had to take the time 
to write out this report to give to Vicki because that's not what cell companies give. What I have in my possession that was provided to Vicki. They created an alternate document. We have no idea why they wouldn't just give the actual cell phone company records. Well, then my question is, and I might be getting ahead of everybody. So on 821, he gets the phone records, which I know there's some doctoring on this going on and falsifying. But is there any report after that of what, what did he conclude? What did he find when they finally, in August, eight months later, get the phone towers on where Aaron's supposed to be that night? Is there any follow-up on what, what did it show? Where's Aaron at? No, there is no follow-up ever in this report. I do want to jump back to Chelsea's comment, though, about on 818, Brian Mosier reporting this as admin closed. He wrote that in the narrative of the report, but in the administrative section on the bottom, he still has the box marked active. So whether that's a typo, just sloppy reporting, it's just a discrepancy on that report. So if we're to look at the administrative section, it's, it's active. So there you are as a family member of the victim, and you're constantly, is it open? Is it closed? They seem to want the best of both worlds and basically play both sides of the fence. All the time, they're hurting a victim's family, not being truthful. We're talking about a police department that their sole job is to protect and serve. Their job is to show up at any scene and process the scene, do the paperwork, follow through on leads, gather leads, and then from the evidence, conclude what happened. None of that was done. What the problem I see in this case is that the simple, basic protocols across the country that have been adopted are not being followed. And it's for the simplest people to go from one thing to another. It is not hard work to show up and take names of who's there and to document what you see. I think it's it's very interesting and important that you mentioned that their job is to protect and serve. And I'm going to argue that they did do that. It's just that they did it for the wrong people. They protected and they served, but it was not Katie and her family. And there are three lives that were lost that day. And how they can put their head on a pillow at night and sleep well without thinking of those three people, I don't know how. I really don't but I don't know how they sleep at night. At any death scene, investigators have to be extremely careful to preserve the area and to not allow any contamination of the scene. Let's look at whether that was done in Katie River and Aiden's case. Looking at the crime scene, what struck me, which has not been discussed yet, is the lack of protective gear on the people around the crime scene. In those crime scene photos, you did not see all the people in gloves and the shoe covers and the protective gear that doesn't contaminate a crime scene. So that's very basic. You had three bodies there and you cannot put gloves and shoe covers on or even something over your hair and you are completely 
completely contaminating that scene. Again, that makes you wonder if not officially, but unofficially in the backs of their minds, they had already decided that this wasn't a crime scene. It was a suicide that they were processing. And so they didn't feel the need to treat it the way you would treat a homicide scene, even though we've already discussed that that is just what you do until you conclusively prove that it could not have been a homicide. You proceed as though it is, but they weren't. They clearly weren't. I just have to say there would be no way to conclude at that scene with Katie's stomach the way it was and Aiden's leg, the unborn child laying next to her body. There's no way to say that was a suicide at that scene. They hadn't talked to nobody. So maybe because they were so sloppy and they knew it, they didn't want to call the FBI because they were already going to be criticized. They didn't want to call in SLED because SLED's going to see all the original pictures where, you know, y'all didn't protect this scene. But there was no way to walk in that scene, I don't believe, and say, oh, this is a suicide unless you just didn't want to do your job. They did call SLED in at some point. I find it interesting that now they're turning to SLED to go over and evaluate how well they investigated when SLED was actually part of the investigation. Which is a conflict of interest. And we will be addressing that big time. But they should have called in SLED initially on that day, the moment they arrived. As we look at Katie's death years after it happened, we can only review what was documented. There is still more basic information that should always be gathered and documented, but was it? In the paperwork, did they notate how Katie entered the scene? Is that anywhere in the documentation? How did she get there? There is absolutely no reference to how she got there. Did they mention that she was walking or because they never said whether she was going north or south, did she? That's what I'm saying. Did they say how she got there? What way, what path did she take to get there? Are we talking about the original investigation on day one? Is there any documentation on how did she get there? No. On day one, no. Later on, they come up with a witness who we've got a lot of proof, you know, that was also pretty much false too. But no, on day one, day two, there was no way to know how Katie got there. When you make an assessment for the crime scene, one of the biggest things and the very last thing that you're supposed to do is figure out, is that the scene the deceased person died? If not, could there be another crime scene? That's your last thing you do that's preliminary. I don't believe they did that. We know they didn't do that. I'd like to say one more thing on the crime scene. So we know they didn't go to the house day one. They went and looked through, you know, Aaron's truck or any of that from that original investigation in 2008. But then here we go in 2018 with 48 hours, got their cameras rolling and we're trying to get them to, they could still go to the house and look for evidence. They could still have gone over the missing vehicles, including Aaron Major's parents' vehicle that went missing. Never's been done still. Still would never have went and forensic the house in 2018 or the vehicles. This is also what you do. Again, it's 101 crime scene. Is the It's your crime scene logs. And that is, again, cross the country approved method of documenting whether it's a car accident or a death scene. And here are just the 
just a few things. You assign an officer to obtain the names of all police officers and emergency personnel who responded to the original call. You assign an officer to record the names of all personnel and civilians involved in the investigation at the crime scene. Allow no entry to the crime scene except to authorize personnel involved in the official investigation. Record arrival departure times of all officials. This includes the medical examiner or coroner, state's attorney, crime scene techs, etc. This crime scene log should be delivered to detectives upon release of the crime scene. Do we have that crime scene log? We have no copy of a log. It's referenced in that very first report that they were starting the log or initiating is the word he used, but there's no evidence of it existing in what they've given to Vicki. And they should have luminol the truck because if there's any blood and, and luminol relevant spots in the house, if there's any blood anywhere other than where she was found, then that, that would have to be explained. And that would certainly cast a whole lot of doubt on any theory of suicide. So this is what I pulled on suicide. And this is solely from an educational standpoint for people that are private investigators going into the specialty of death scenes. And this is highlighted in yellow and hammered into me. Investigatively speaking, all death investigations should be handled as a homicide case until the facts prove differently. The resolution of the mode of the death as suicide is based on a series of factors that eliminate homicide, accident, and natural cause of death. Remember, do it right the first time. You only get one chance. So if I'm following you right, that information came from a book for who? Bible for death investigators. Right. So what I can tell you, because I've had to do my own research all these years, is that exact quote is in the federal handbook for the police. Exact quote is in there. And in, in their 101 for the, you know them to follow under. So I can, I, you know, I've Googled it and I found it. It's actually a handbook in the United States for police officers. That is what I've been taught from day one on death investigations, that you do not go in with a preconceived notion. I could say one more thing. So pushing forward a minute, but in a meeting with Sheriff Lewis, the last meeting, January 2020, he told me, Vicki, I don't know if this will make you feel better when he had let me know they're not doing anything more and the case is basically closed. He said, but because of you, we have changed protocol. From now on, all cases under my leadership will be considered suspicious deaths and we will have to rule out anything else. We won't just rule them a suicide anymore. We're going to do protocol now because of you staying on us, you know, pointing out these things. And he said that in the meeting that now Berkeley County will um, consider all deaths suspicious until ruled otherwise. That's something new to them. So now they're going to do what they should have been doing all along, and that is supposed to make you feel better. 
And I did tell him that and exactly what I said right back to him. I said, Sheriff Lewis, that's in the handbook. That's under 101 for investigations. I said, yes, it will make me feel better if other families don't have to go through what me and my family have gone through because of that protocol not being followed. But I said, that's 101 in the handbook. I feel like those are just words to shut you up and make you go away. It has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with their policies. That is take this woman, get her away from me. I'm done talking about it. And we're not talking about it anymore. So I'm going to make her feel like she has changed the world. And that's going to be enough to shut her up. They needed to see if Katie wrote a suicide note. If it was written voluntarily, they need to collect the note that it, and preserve it for any latent fingerprints. They should have obtained a sample of known writings of the deceased for comparison. They should have examined computers, cell phones for incoming and outgoing messages. They need to identify and interview recipients of texts or email messages. That is just broad stroke. They should have. Now we're going to get into the suicide checklist. 101, guys. It says, could the deceased have caused the injuries and death? That's the first question. Was the person physically able to accomplish the act? Are the wounds within reach of the deceased? Are the wounds grouped together? Is there more than one cause of death? Describe the nature and position of the injuries. Does it appear that the subject was intent on killing herself? And then, of course, is their hesitation marks. So those are questions. I think the things that if you're looking at Katie's case, could she have caused those injuries? I believe she was already dead before those injuries happened. I would have to see a reconstruction done in order to know if she even if it was even possible to cause the injuries. But not only that, if she did cause the injury, I still go back to the blood. There was no blood. That's what I'm saying. She was already dead. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, could she possibly have caused injuries? Maybe. I haven't looked at the pictures, but I think there was real clear indication that Katie didn't step in front of a train to commit suicide. And I know there's also statistics and the statistics of a pregnant woman committing suicide with her child, her 10-month-old child, by throwing herself into the side of the train like they ruled it, there's zero statistics to, that's never happened. People that commit suicide don't walk a half a mile down a dark railroad track, pregnant with the baby. So none of them things were even adding up statistically to call it a suicide or injury-wise, that she did not step in front of a train to commit suicide. That's how it's normally done. You make sure it's done. One of the investigative things that they notate in suicides is on a computer, smartphone, or some of the websites would have been a pattern. There's no pattern. Any investigation is supposed to be objective and free from inferences being made and can't be substantiated with actual evidence. But people make mistakes and sometimes have hidden agendas. 
See, I believe in the report, they try to show a pattern. I believe they're pushing a narrative all along because in the report where they actually talk about recovering her truck from Hampton Robinson's house, they talk about Vicky and how upset Vicky is. And they actually push that Vicky said that Katie had been acting strange. Katie had been paranoid. Um, Katie had run away before. So they say things like this. There's also documented in the report, uh, I believe it's her friend, Rachel, where Rachel also discusses Katie being upset with the elections and things like that. So while I don't think that it exists out in other forms, they definitely push that narrative throughout this report. Where is the independent corroboration of this storyline that they're coming up with? So they have a narrative from Rachel. And then Rachel writes Vicki saying that's not true. Everything Sheila has read is on the internet. If you want to know, so they don't even, if they want to know the handbook is on the internet. It, I read it in 2008 on the internet. So what I'm saying is I read exactly what she described about suicide on the internet, how it's supposed to be handled. I read about 101 crime scene investigation was on the internet. So it's not like it's like a hidden thing that you only get taught this in classes. You know, just Google it. Google, what should I do when I do a crime scene investigation? You can read it all over the internet. You've educated yourself. You've taken the time. You have looked and done whatever you needed to do. And that's rare. Most people don't self-educate. If they're not forced to take a class, then they're just not going to know that information. Even when it's their job. It is not the family's job to prove a case. It is the police department's job to follow evidence and leads. Okay, so in the incident report, when it references, let's see, this is written by Mark Mason, and it's in reference to Katie's truck. And he references that you arrive while he was waiting for the wrecker to come tow the vehicle and that you approached the vehicle, you were obviously emotionally upset and started asking, what happened? What did she do? He says that he then contacted Captain Olick, who advised he would be on his way with the coroner to speak to you. I did arrive at the scene, but if you're going to start from, from the exact point here, what document did he write this in on? Where is this written in on? Did you notice where it's written in on? Hampton Robinson's document, Hampton Robinson, right? So they, so there's no document on this under my name. Somehow it shows up under Hampton Robinson's name because yes, they got that information possibly from Hampton Robinson, but they never got that information from me on that day. That's why they don't have a report titled from the mother, Vicki Hall, her address, her phone number, because they never talked to me there. That was never said there. Also, if you notice, Hampton Robinson has a handwritten statement that is signed. And everybody else who spoke at the scene that day, Joseph Williams has a, a supplement and his own handwritten statement. If they would have talked to me that day, just like they did for Aaron, they said Aaron was too upset, so they had to write the document for him and he signed it. So if they were, their excuse is Vicky was too upset, which I was not, I was in control like I am right now. They would have had, they would have written a statement for me and said, what's in that report? They would have wrote it out and had me sign it, correct? 
There is no document because it was never said. That man never came near me. I know when the document showed up in the file would be June 17th. The same time the other document showed up in the file, there was the document that showed up on June 17th. So yes, I know these were staged because I know I never said it. That man never came near me. And if he did come near and talk to me, there would be, they would ask me to, wouldn't they have loved to have that statement from me to get it all done? Then they came to my house from there, by the way, they came to my house. Once they said, Miss Hall, we know you, this is hard and you're upset, but we need to get a statement from you and we need you to sign it. We'll write it for you, but you need to sign it because it was never done. I never said them things. Did they come and have a statement? I want to go on the record on this. Did they come to your house, write a statement, and you sign it? No. So question, and then I'll continue with what it says in the incident report. But they say that Alec and Salisbury were on the way to talk to you. Do you recall when you were standing by the truck if that happened? I actually recall everything that that man said to me, but he yelled at me from maybe 100 feet away. He was at at a car. And when I showed up, got out of my truck because I thought I I was seeing Katie's truck, he yelled at me because I I got out of my truck and I walked to Katie's truck. But he's far away from me, like about 100 feet. And he said, who are you? As I got to the truck, I said, because I had looked in the truck, I said, I'm the mom, because I could tell it was Katie's truck. I fell to my knees, because I don't know why her truck would be there. And he said, don't touch, don't touch that truck. And I get on the phone, start making phone. I called Aaron, told him I had found the truck. The next thing he told me, the police, would, he yelled, the police will be coming to talk to you. And then the next thing he told me to move my truck, because I had it in the road, you know, running. And he said I had to move my truck, which I went way down to another house because there was nowhere else to park. And he never came near me, never heard a word from him again. They just, they needed this because they were trying to cover up and they added it in on June 17th. I even know when they added it to this document. That's why they don't have a separate document from Vicki Hall. They added it into Robin Hampton's statement. That's not normal either. If you look, they don't never put two names on one statement. That was all Mark Mason that you were talking about, right? Not Alec. Well, um, Lieutenant Mason's name is on the document with Mr. Hampton Robinson. So Lieutenant Mason had talked to Hampton Robinson, I'm assuming. But I believe who went back behind later and needed a document because I was pushing so hard was Rick Olick is who, not Mr. Mason. I believe Rick Olick, captain of investigations, went in and doctored the document on June 17th for a meeting that he had to go to. But Mark Mason is the one that was yelling, who are you? Yes. Okay. So the way he writes it, he certainly should not have had you get back in your vehicle and park it in a different spot because he makes you sound very inconsolable and very dangerous to put behind the wheel. Yes. And you'll never find anybody else to say anything like that, that I was, you know, uncontrollable that day, weeping. I I, I had control because I was the mom and I was worried. I've got to tell my other children, you know, the mom kicks in and what was I upset? Of course, but I trying to be the strong person and how am I going to call Jeremy and Jess? you know, I was in control. I can't say that I wasn't in shock some and all, but I could have signed a statement. I was willing to answer any questions they had. Do we know if they have body cams or car cams? 
Um, I know as far as Lieutenant Mason, he was in a old Berkeley County, had an old burgundy car that was unmarked, like old, like maybe 1970s looking. And that's what he was standing by. So, and I don't, I remember him being more in street clothes and I remember the car. And um, so as far as him having cameras, I doubt it. This really brings us back to the idea that every type of evidence has to be looked at, not just evidence of the crime itself, but of how the investigation was conducted and how statements may have been influenced. Mason continues that he was able to calm her down, meaning Vicki, every once in a while, and was able to get the following information. Katie Major had recently started acting out of the ordinary, being paranoid and getting really involved in the presidential elections. Now, mind you, the Republican primary was coming up, right? Government conspiracies, etc. Katie had taken off a few times in the past, but it always returned. Mason asked what brought her to Oakley Road, and Vicki stated that the family had been looking for Katie since her son-in-law called last night saying she had left. She was returning from the Goose Creek area when she received information that someone had been hit by a train. So she came down Oakley Road and saw her daughter's car. She stated that they probably should have called law enforcement last night, but Katie had taken off before and had always returned. Captain Alec and Deputy Coroner Salisbury arrived on scene and the vehicle was towed. That's summarized at the end there. I remember when I first seen this statement, I don't remember the year when I finally, you know, it could have been two years to get the documents, the, you know, the phone records. It was a long, it was a long haul, but I couldn't sleep all night. I'm like, oh my God, what are they doing? Because I knew it wasn't true. And I'm like, why is this in a police report? You know, it was just this huge red flag. And then when I put everything in the box in 2012 and had locked it up and didn't look at it again until like 2016 or something, you know, I had taken the break on it and going through the papers again, I had kind of forgotten about it. And that night I had pulled it up and read it again when I first started going through documents and I couldn't sleep all night that night trying to comprehend what are they doing? Why did they put this in here? Because I know 100% I didn't say it. And if they had that information anyway, it would show up. They added this to the file because I kept trying to pursue this case. I couldn't understand, though, is I would hire PIs and I would hire people to help or get people to help me. And every time they talked to Rick Olick, these people would seem to change their heart. But I believe Rick Olick was showing them that statement. What I'm noticing is written in that statement, if you pay attention, and I just caught it because we were just talking about Aaron's interrogation. It sounds like exactly what Aaron had said in the interrogation, which is more proof that I didn't say it. This is what Aaron had said. While Aaron and Katie were married, did Katie ever leave Aaron or run away? No, never. Not even for a minute. So in there, it says that the family had been looking for Katie since her son-in-law called last night seeing, saying she had left. There are so many things wrong with that. Right. So, and if, if you'll notice, that statement is also in the, on the autopsy, and they're saying that's what the husband said. Aaron and family members looked for them throughout the night, and that was another big of my fight. If Aaron and family members looked, through her, looked for them throughout the night, 
who are the other family members? See how they, it always ties back into what Aaron said, but it's in the autopsy on the front page of Katie's autopsy report, very similar to what you just read to me. And I've been trying to find out all these years, if Aaron and other families looked throughout the night, was it him and his parents? Because it wasn't us. If Vicki had believed it was a suicide, why would she be spending all of these years, all of this time, all of this emotional pain, not to mention money? These investigations are not cheap. When you're hiring investigators, when you're spending money to try to get um, government documentation, when you're trying to engage professionals and experts, if Vicki believed that this was a pattern of behavior, and this, it probably was likely that she had committed suicide. She would not be doing what she's doing now. I like to say, if I believe Katie committed suicide, people can't probably understand this, but if she really had lost her mind and committed suicide and killed her being pregnant and River, I believe she fought with everything she had and to fight for River this is so much harder to believe she lost her mind and went and killed, you know, committed suicide. But I know that's not what happened. I mean, nothing added up. Two plus two would never equal four in any of their reports and anything that came up. It just wasn't making sense. I would have been okay with it. But I believe she had to scream and fight for everything to the end. And that's what just kills me. And the other thing that really breaks my heart is. Katie was a mother and loved being a mother and loved River, was excited about Aiden. And for the lie to live on that she committed suicide and killed not only herself, but her children. I'm fighting for Katie because she was a great mother. And I I just feel like I got to keep fighting for her to clear all of that for her because I'm a mother. And if someone would have said she killed herself and her children and I didn't do it, I just think it's so wrong. They didn't do their job to prove the truth. I want to thank Katie's mother, Vicki Hall, for sharing such difficult personal memories with us. She does it because she needs answers about what happened that night to Katie, River, and Aiden. Please help us get those answers for her by sharing this podcast to people in the Monks Corner, South Carolina area. Help us demand accountability from the investigators who swore that they would protect and serve. If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call 1-888-599-0008. Join Patreon and Crowdsource Justice with private investigator Sheila Wysocki. Without Warning Podcast, Season 3 Investigation, Derailed. Executive Director, Executive Producer, and Host, Sheila Wysocki and announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and private investigator Jenny Moore for their boots to the ground, passionate, laser-focused research.